Well, good morning. We're in a series called When God Asks Questions. And just starting out the talk this morning, um, I want to ask you, have you ever known someone in your life that you would say needed a little bit of a reality check? Right? And by reality check, what I mean is this is somebody for whom what, they're, what they want or what they expect or what they think they're going to get is different than what they're going to get. And so you think, well, this person really is, I'll give you, give you an example. When I was um, a young adult, American Idol first hit the scene. If you're an American Idol fan, I'm sorry, I, I just never was able to get into it. But I did watch the first episode or so. And at that point, they were you know, auditioning people at these remote sites to see whether they, would, they had what it took to come and be part of the, the big competition. And, and so, you know, they're interviewing these people outside as they're waiting to go in for their, for, for their auditions, you know, and the guy puts the microphone in the person's face and they say, I'm going to be the next platinum recording star. And my mother says I have the best voice in the whole world. And then, then they go in the room and when they start singing, they sound, you know, like a screeching cat who's sick and being run over by a car, and you think, this person needs a reality check because what they want and what they're going to get are two different things, you know? Or, you know, one of my favorites is, uh, you know, Wendy and I, our girls are now 12 and 7, and we're kind of past that stage of the, having an infinite home or newborn, having the, all the work that, that that involves. We're at a different stage of work as far as parenting is concerned, but... Um, I always think it's interesting to talk to, to a couple who's expecting their first child. And, you know, especially towards the end there, you know, they, they look a little tired. They've got the little bags under their eyes, and they've got a lot going on, the baby showers and putting together the bed and painting the room, trying to get everything, you know, what it needs to be. And so you try to tell them, you, you, you should get some rest, you know. And they say, no problem. There'll be plenty of time to rest once the baby comes. You, know? <laughs> you think, well, you're going to kind of get a little bit of a reality check once that baby shows up because what you want and what you're going to get two different things. But I know that we all kind of understand this tension, and we have these influences in our life. I mean, all of us have goals. For all of us, there's something that we would say, I would love to do this. Something in our heart says it would be a good thing if I could do this. I would love to climb Mount Everest. Not me, I would die, but I would love to climb Mount Everest, or something like that. This is my goal, this is what I want to do, um, but we also all have to fight with the fact that we all have complications in our life. There's always a barrier or an obstacle or a hurdle or something that stands between where we are right now and where we would like to be, what our goal is, what we want to accomplish. Now, this is a normal part of life. As a matter of fact, in almost every area of our life, we have goals and we have complications. Usually, it's not too big a deal. Like, for instance... I would love to be able to go grocery shopping and buy groceries for the family, but I have to have money in the bank account, so I'm going to go to work. That's normal. That's natural. It's just life. I would love to, you know, I, you know when I was um, 16, I would love to drive a car. I would love to be able to drive a vehicle, but I have to have a driver's license. So you learn to drive, and you go get a driver's license. That's normal life. So long as whatever the complication is that stands in our way is something we can handle, if it's something we can manage, if it's something we can fix, we got no problems, and that's just our everyday. But what happens when you have a complication that's bigger than you? Something you can't fix, something you can't manage, something you can't handle, well, that's when a reality check happens, right? Because at that point, we hit cold, hard reality, and we have to say, well, I guess I'll just settle for you fill in the blank. As a matter of fact, we could say that 
A reality check is a forced compromise. It is what brings us down from the goal that we have and brings us back to what reality is going to be. Sometimes that's a good thing, right? For instance, and by the way, let me preface this by saying, after all my years working in the car industry, I have zero fascination with sports cars. But suppose I was fascinated with sports cars and I wanted to go, you know, buy a Ferrari. And I go to the dealership and I drool on the car for a little while and I test drive it and I say, this is the car for me. And they take me from the free donuts and coffee room to the show me the money room, right? Have you ever bought a car? Eventually they will take you from the free donuts and coffee room to the show me the money room. And when I get to that room, this person, the finance and insurance guy, figures out that I'm not on a Ferrari budget, I'm on a Ford Focus budget. <laughs> and this person gives me a little bit of a reality check. You know, you're at the wrong dealership, in the wrong neighborhood, in the wrong state, go someplace else, buy a car that you can afford. That's okay, that's decent, that's necessary. Sometimes reality check is necessary. It'd be the same thing for our American Idol person. Maybe it's good not to invest so much time and effort into trying to be the next rock star. If that's not going to happen, maybe it would be better to, to put that, in, that energy into another zone. Here's where, where we kind of run into the rub of, of what we're going to talk about this morning. What about those areas in your life, though, where the complication is bigger than you, it's more than you can manage, you don't have the resources to fix it, and yet it is an area in which you are unwilling to compromise? See, it's okay to compromise on buying a cheaper car. It's okay to compromise on not being America's next big rock star. But there are some things in my life where I have a goal that's very, very important to me. For instance, in terms of a goal, I would love to be the very best parent that I could possibly be to my 12-year-old and 7-year-old daughters. Um, but I learned that being the best parent you can be is complicated because they do not give you an instruction manual. Now, I figured, you know, you can go to Barnes & Noble, they've got a huge section on parenting, you know, and I figured I'd just get the books and I'd read on how to parent and that would be good. But this you will eventually learn. If you're not a parent yet, someday you will be. When, when you are, you will learn this, that nobody has written an instruction manual on your kid. <laughs> Plus... I have girls. And that's complicated because I grew up in a house full of boys. So I didn't know anything about Barbies and, and other you know, baby dolls and hair bows and ribbons and the fact that emotions are different in a house of girls than they are in a house of boys. And <laughs> so it's complicated, right? And then as they get older and as my life changes, some of the complications now are not about the girls, they're about me. I'm so busy now, and I'll have one of the girls come to me, and they want to hang out, they want to play, they want, you know, my girls love board games, hey dad, let's play a board game, oh, I'm, I'm really busy right now, I got a lot of stuff going on, I would love to, I would actually love to play a board game with you, but I got this stuff right here, and I got I to gotta get it done, so uh, maybe we'll settle for doing something else a little later on, and I find that I'm at this place of, I would love to be the best parent possible, but being a parent is complicated, and I'm busy, so I'll settle for being an okay parent, or yeah, you can apply this to my marriage. Wendy is the greatest woman on the face of planet Earth, and she and I have core values that are, that are just right in line together. But when it comes to our personalities, it's like this. And our way of approaching stuff can, can be like this. And, you know, we have a lot in common when it comes to what matters. But when it comes to how we go about stuff, it's very, very different. 
And that makes things complicated sometimes. And I find myself sometimes going, I would love to be the best spouse I possibly could, but we handle things so differently and our approaches are so different, so I'll just settle for being an okay husband. But I just don't feel good about that. I don't want to be an okay dad. I don't want to be an okay husband. I don't want to be an okay pastor. You know why? Because those are all things God has called me to. You know, God didn't call me to be a rock star. God didn't call me to drive a very fast vehicle. But God does want me to be an exceptional parent. God does want me to be an exceptional spouse, an exceptional pastor. And so if you're where I'm at, where you'd say, you know what, sometimes I feel myself compromising, but I don't want to compromise, especially in the areas where God has called me to do something, this talk is for you. Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, now wait a minute, Jonathan, you're using the word exceptional. Is that is that really right? I mean, doesn't the Bible talk about humility and contentment and this idea of wanting to be a front runner, wanting to have an exceptional life, using words like best? I mean, is that really, you know, in the, in the Bible, is God cool with that? Well, let me show you this verse from, from 1 Corinthians because I think it sort of settles that question. Paul says, don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. So that's okay. Paul is saying, listen, if it's something God has called you to, then you should, you should orient yourself toward being exceptional. You should work very hard to be exceptional. You shouldn't compromise. So that's what we're going to talk about. And, and I, I want to take you to the story in the scripture uh, of a man named Peter. Now, if you're new to the Bible and you're new to New Spring, um, let me just tell you that Peter uh, is one of Jesus' disciples. Now, a disciple is just somebody who follows and learns from a leader. There were a lot of religious leaders uh, around when Jesus was on earth, and most of them had some group of disciples. Everybody knew what a disciple was back then. It was just somebody who follows and learns from the leader that they're with. And so when Jesus came to earth and he was doing his earthly ministry, there were a lot of people who followed him, but there was a special group of about 12 guys who tended to follow him just about wherever he went and participate in his ministry, and Peter was one of those guys. Now, in order to follow Jesus, I think it's fair to say that you need to be somebody who wants to live an exceptional life, and all the disciples were pretty much in that zone. But Peter was special. Um, He especially seemed to just have a heart that really worked hard to connect with God, to find out how to be in the zone of living the life that God called him to. Just to show you how exceptional he is, let me show you what happens when Jesus and Peter first run into each other. Uh, and this is actually the second meeting. Let me correct what I said. This is the second meeting with Jesus, Jesus and Peter. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, and Simon's just another name for Peter, and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. They, you know, that was their business, fish, you know, catching fish and selling them. And Jesus called out to them, come follow me. He's asking them to be his disciples and I will show you how to fish for people. So Jesus is making a little play, of, play on words here. He's saying, you've been spending your whole life catching and selling these smelly fish. I want, to, I want to elevate and promote you to doing something more cool. I want to show you how to change people's lives. Um, and so this is what you need to know. When Jesus makes this offer, they understand Jesus is not offering them a salaried position. This is not a position with benefits. Jesus is literally asking them to leave their jobs and come follow him. That's kind of a big deal. And this would have been the perfect time for Peter to say, you know what, Jesus, I would love to do that. Sounds cool. Sounds like a good goal to me. But 
you know, I got this business and I got all these obligations and stuff that I got going on and it's really not a good time for me. I mean, maybe if I had a little more money in the bank, maybe if I had some other stuff uh, settled a little bit more in my life, it would be good. But right now, I think I'm just going to settle for staying here and doing the whole fisherman gig. But, but thank you for the offer. I mean, I really appreciate it. It makes me feel special and I appreciate, you know, you asking. But that's not what Peter does. Check this out. It says, they left their nets at once and followed him. That is what it looks like when a person is running to win. That's what it looks like when a person refuses to compromise because Peter understood this was a calling on his life. Some of you in this room, you know that God has placed a calling on your life. At some point, God really laid on your heart a vision or a mission or an idea uh, or, or, or something that you just, your heart connected with it. You knew this is God that's calling me to this. And, and Peter was like, this is a calling from God and I'm not gonna sacrifice, I'm not gonna compromise on that, I'm gonna do what God is calling me to do. And so throughout Jesus' ministry, Peter follows him. He's following, he's learning and following and learning. And following Jesus had its benefits. <clears throat> I, um, I have two extremely well-credentialed paramedics in the family. I, uh, I have two younger brothers. I'm the oldest. My middle brother um, is just a little less than two years younger than me, and he's a uh, highly qualified um, and respected paramedic, his wife is as well. And when they come to family gatherings, especially around the holidays and so forth, I just breathe a deep breath in, you know. <sighs> Everything's gonna be okay, because what could go wrong, you know? I think this is the perfect time to just do crazy stuff. I'm gonna jump down the stairs and let the Christmas tree fall on people. Who cares, you know, I'm gonna electrocute myself. There's paramedics here, I don't care. You know, this is time to, this time to have fun. And, because uh, I figure whatever breaks, they can fix it, you know. And I figure being a disciple of Jesus had to be a little bit like that because they, they start following Jesus and, and, and Jesus heals this guy's hand. It was all withered and atrophied and he wasn't able to use his hand and then Jesus heals it and now he's got the full use of it back and there's this guy who can't walk and, and, and his use of his legs is completely gone and Jesus heals him and now he's able to walk and Jesus is turning water into wine and raising dead people back to life and it just seems like there isn't any problem that Jesus can't solve. And so I think Peter's going, look, whatever the complication is, I mean, now for the first time in my life, all of my goals are going to work out because whatever the complication is, Jesus can absolutely handle it. He can just make it go away. He can fix it. Even when I can't fix the complication, Jesus can fix it. And that had to be pretty cool. But Jesus wanted to teach the disciples something. Jesus wanted to help them understand that exceptional living almost never happens in a season of calm. And, and we know this. You know that in your life there have been seasons where something happened and you, you look back on that and you go, man, I don't even know how I was able to do that. That was beyond me. That was God doing something in me because it certainly wasn't me. And you know that almost all the times that we can point to that, it was happening in a period of difficulty. It was happening when the complication was right over your head. It was happening in a storm. And Jesus needed the disciples to understand that if they really wanted to live an exceptional life, they were going to have to develop a comfort level with the storm so long as he was there with them. So he, he starts to kind of work them through the process of experiencing uh, that. And, and I can show you this. Mark chapter 4 is a good example of this. Um, they're over by the Sea of Galilee. This is the same place where Jesus called Peter in the first place. And as evening came, the Bible says, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side uh, of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat, and they started out leaving the, leaving the crowds behind. But soon a fierce storm came up, and high waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. And this is a big deal because 
First of all, these boats were not intended to be passenger boats. This was not a transport vessel. This was a fishing vessel. So getting all the disciples into the boat to take them from one side of the water to the other was really not what this was built for. Second of all, this is not a tracker boat from Bass Pro. This is an ancient boat. They were not tremendously safe either way on, on calm waters or storm waters, but when it was bad, it was especially scary. And now water's coming into the boat, and these guys are pretty sure that they're going to die. And so they want Jesus to fix the complication. Fix it now. Do something about it now. This isn't cool. And so they, they, uh, they find Jesus, and he's sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a pillow. And the disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? It's like if God isn't fixing the complication right now, and I'm still having to look eye to eye with the complication, then that must mean that Jesus doesn't care about me and that something really bad's going to happen. And by the way, some of us have had some experience with some sort of religion or a teacher who says that when you follow God, then God is going to handle all the complications in your life so long as you have enough faith. If you have enough faith and you have cancer, God's going to heal you of the cancer. If you've got enough faith and you've got a relative who's, who's dying, then God is going to, to, to heal that dying relative. I have no idea where that came from. It, 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 it's nowhere in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, it's, it's completely the opposite. Jesus teaches us in the scriptures that in order to really experience exceptional living, we have to lean into the storm sometimes. It's important to recognize that because God is with us in the storm, we can make it through. We can't just expect that God is always going to calm it. But in this case, Jesus decides that he's going to help them through this. Jesus wakes up, he rebukes the wind and says to the waves, silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. But look at this. Then he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, that phrase that gets rendered, why are you afraid, in the original language, it has the same weight because it's rhetorical. It has the same weight as saying, there was no reason for you to be afraid. Well, that doesn't seem quite fair because storms are scary. It's certainly scary to be in that boat and have the boat taking on water and, and felt very dangerous. How could Jesus say that, that there was no reason to be afraid? Jesus is trying to teach them that, well, well let, me, let me back up and just say, here's the thing. This is, this is part of the, the core of what the Bible teaches us. The core of the Bible teaches us that God is bigger than any complication that you're ever going to face. And so God is trying to teach us that when he is with us, we can make it through. Some of you right now, you're facing a financial storm. Some of you are facing a relationship storm. Some of you are facing just a, a storm of, seems like just things are piling on. Things, little stressors that have turned out to be more than you can handle. You sort of feel the stress fracture starting to happen inside. And God is saying, but you can, you can make it through this storm. There's no reason to be afraid if I'm here with you. Now, how can God say that there's no reason to be afraid so long as he's there? Let me show you this, and this is powerful. This is in the book of Psalms. In Psalms, the Bible says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Now, we love the second half of this verse. He will give you your heart's desires. This is what we want. But notice what the first half of the verse says, take delight in the Lord. What does that mean? It means that when we talk about what, what delights us, what, what, what is it that, that we feel delighted by, it has a lot to do with what, is, what do we want in life? What is our will? What is, it that we're, what is it that we're going for in life? What makes us happy? And, and the Bible is saying that when we go into the control room of our life, 
where all the, the buttons and the knobs and the dials are, and we take the dial of our will, what, is, what, what would make me happy? What would make me feel fulfilled? What, what am I going for in this life? And we take that knob and we calibrate it to be this, pointed the same direction as what God's will is. So when what makes me happy is what makes God happy, and what I want is what God wants, then the Bible says when we get into that slipstream, then God gives us the desires of our heart because we're in line with him. And in a sense, God is looking out for us because we are following him. And that's the overarching message Jesus is trying to teach the disciples in the storm. He's trying to say, you're doing what I've asked you to do. I've asked you to follow me. You're following me. I told you to get in the boat. You got in the boat. I'm with you in the boat because you're doing what I asked you to do, and I'm going to take care of you if you're doing what I've called you to do. If you're following me, I'm going to make sure that you're okay. Jesus is trying to teach them that, but over time, it's still tough for them to take in. Even when Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount in, in, in the book of Matthew, he recaps this concept. He says, that's why I tell you not to worry about every way, everyday life, whether you have enough food or, and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Can all the stress that you're doing about the complication, all of the being absorbed and obsessed with all of those stressors that are hanging over your head, is it helping anything? Is it making it better? Is it adding a moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Same thing he was asking in the boat when they were stressing out. So don't worry about these things, saying what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? These things dominate the minds of unbelievers. So he's saying, this is what it's like when you don't follow God, you have to deal with the complication. If the dial in the control room of my life is set to being America's next pop star, then the complication is my responsibility. I have to deal with that complication because it's my goal. If the dial in the, the control room of my life is set to being the richest person in the world, then I've got to deal with the stress of that complication because it's my responsibility, because it's my goal. But God is saying when the dial is set so that my goal is God's goal, then the responsibility of the complication is God's responsibility because it's his goal. And he's responsible to deal with the storm. So that's why he says, so don't worry. He said, this, he said here's something don't, that you don't do. Here's something that you should do. He says, don't worry, but instead seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And that word righteously just means doing what God says is right. And he will give you everything you need. Do you see the Bible's over and over saying, set the dial, calibrate the will, choose to be happy by what makes God happy, and then the complication is God's thing to manage. Right, so... They've already been through all of this, and, and, and the disciples are following Jesus, and they end up where this massive crowd is following them and listening to Jesus teach. At least 5,000 men, Bible scholars say maybe 10, 12,000 people total, and, and they're you know, following Jesus off into kind of a remote place, and there's no McDonald's or Burger King there, and the disciples are starting to think they got, they're going to have a mutiny on their hands because they know people get cranky when they get hungry, and they think we've got to get these people out of here so they can go get food, you know, that's not going to be good when they all realize there's nothing here to eat. And uh, so they go to Jesus and say, hey, 
we need to send the crowd away and, and let them go get some food so they can eat. And Jesus says, no, that's not necessary. You feed them, right? And this is where the disciples feel like it is, it is their responsibility to give Jesus a reality check. We would love to feed them. That sounds like a great goal, but we don't have any food to feed them with. We went around to find out if anybody has any food. We find this little kid. He's got a little sack lunch. He's got some, some crackers and some sardines. That's not going to handle it. That's not going to fill. That's not going to feed these people. So we really need to send them away. We're just going to settle for sending them into town because the complication is really too much. You remember what Jesus said? He wants the little boy's sack lunch brought up to him, the crackers and the sardines, and he prays a prayer of blessing over it, and he begins to break the, the, the crackers and sardines apart, and, he, and, and as a result, they feed the entire crowd and have baskets left over. It's, it's like Jesus is just doing anything he can to try to help them understand, you're following me, I'm gonna cover it, I'm gonna take care of it, even when it looks like things are not okay. And so the end of the day comes, all the people have been fed, crowd is dissipating, and Jesus tells the disciples, I want you to go get in the boat and cross over the Sea of Galilee, same place they were at in the last storm. I want you to cross the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to go pray for a while. So Jesus goes to a remote place, and he prays, and the disciples get in the boat, and they start to cross over, but once again, they've got this massive storm that comes up, and the Bible tells us that they fight this storm until three o'clock in the morning. They've been fighting it for nine hours. They should have been able, the, the trajectory of where they were going, they should have been able to kind of follow the coastline to go where they were headed, but because of the wind being so bad, it's pushed them out three or four miles into the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and they're in a lot of trouble. And about three o'clock, Jesus comes up, he, he, you know, he had left where he was praying, and he, and, and he comes up to where they are, and the Bible says that when he came to them, he came to them walking on the water. Now, this is what Matthew says. In Mark's book, Mark tells us that Jesus did not intend to get in the boat. Jesus intended to walk alongside the boat. Now, the last storm was the undergrad course. This is the graduate course. Jesus wanted them to understand in the last course that it was okay for them to be in the storm because he was in the boat with them, even though he was sleeping. Now, this is the grad level course. He needs them to learn to be okay and to be comfortable being in the boat when he's not even in the boat with them, but they can see him. He's saying, I want you to know that if I'm there, you can make it through this. But they kind of wig out, and they start thinking that what they're seeing is a ghost. They, they were terrified, and their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. And Jesus is going to settle that really quickly. He says, don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. That word take courage in the original language, it means a couple things. It means to um, cheer up, and then it means to think bold thoughts. In our culture, we would say think out of the box. And Jesus is saying, hey, guys, cheer up. Think out of the box. I'm here. I'm taking care of this. What do you want to do? I mean, let's, let's imagine some possibilities here. You know, let's think this through. And the only disciple who gets what Jesus is saying when he says think out of the box is Peter. Peter's the only one who gets it. And so the Bible says that he makes a request to Jesus. Peter called out to him and he said, Lord, if it's really you, and this word would have been better translated since, Lord, since it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. That's thinking out of the box, I gotta say. Right? And, and Jesus says, yes, come. So Peter went over the side of the boat and he walked on the water toward Jesus. Now you want to talk about exceptional living. You want to talk about doing, I mean, doing something amazing. This, Peter's doing something no human being has ever done before. And as far as, I'm, as far as I know, no other human being has done it since. This is pretty phenomenal that Peter's walking on the boat and, out of the boat. And, and it had to be a very scary thing, even though he was walking on the water, because even after the other disciples saw him 
out there walking on the water, there were no other takers. Nobody else was volunteering saying, all right, I saw Peter could do it. I want to do it too. They still wanted to be in the boat. I mean, they're still doing a little bit of a reality check. Hey, we would love to be out there with Peter. That looks kind of cool, but it's still a little too scary for us, so we're just going to settle for staying in the boat. There's Peter. He's walking on the water, but then the complication starts to get to him again because when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified, and he began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted, and Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. Aren't you thankful that when we call out to God for him to save us, he's immediately there and he immediately reaches out to us? But then he says, you have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? You have so little faith. All my life, reading this passage, growing up, and I, you know, when you're a kid and you're in Sunday school and they talk all the time about you know, Jesus and Peter walking on the water because it's fun to do with flannel graph. You, know, you can make Peter walk across the... Some of y'all don't know what flannel graph is. You're probably better off for it. But, um, but whenever I heard this story, I would think Jesus is really scolding Peter. You know, He's saying, Peter, you really let me down, man. I mean, you, you almost had it. You really got it there. But then you so messed up because, you know, and I heard so many preachers preach about this is what happens when you take your eyes off Jesus. You fail him and you end up in the... This week, for the first time in my life, something clicked for me. And I hope it will help you too. But I remembered, as I was studying this, I remember the story of uh, when my dad was teaching me how to ride my bike. When I was a really little kid, we, you know, back then the church was at the old location, which was at Hillside Mount Vernon on the south side of town. And we lived in a parsonage, which is just a name for a house that the church owns that the pastor lives in. And so we lived in a hundred-year-old home right across the street from, or right across the parking lot from the, from the main church building. And uh, now, if you're a kid, and you have a bike to ride, it's really cool to be a pastor's kid living in a parsonage because the whole week long, there's this massive parking lot and nobody parked in it. So there's all this room to ride your bikes around, right? And uh, so my, my dad wanted to make sure I, I knew, you know, he wanted to teach me how to ride a bike. I was pretty small at the time and not very coordinated. And uh, so we started practicing on this little grassy area that was right next to the, to the parking lot. And, uh, you know, I, I started riding. At first, I would fall quite a bit. Eventually, I got pretty good at riding. And my dad said, okay, I think you're ready to ride on the pavement now. You know, go for it. No, I don't, I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can ride on the pavement. And so my patient dad waited for so long, but he kept gent- gently prodding me. You can really do this. You know, you can, you're, you're good enough. You've got it. And one day, for some reason or another, I just decided to give it a shot. There was no curb or anything between the grass and the pavement. It was just continuous. And so I made a little turn and went from the grass onto the pavement and was kind of riding on it. And for about five seconds, I was like, this is really cool. Until my brain kicked in and said, you don't know how to ride on pavement. And all of a sudden, I started freaking out. And I turned around and I looked back at my dad who was behind me uh, with a you know, panicked look, and, and for about two seconds before I ran into an air conditioner unit on the side of the church, <laughs> and my dad is running up to me, he's kind of jogging up there, and he's holding his hand out for a high five, and he's like, but you were doing it, he's, you were doing it, you did a great job. He's like, what happened? I don't understand. You were doing a fantastic job. Let's get back up. Let's do it again. And it dawned on me for the first time, where are Peter and Jesus when they're having this conversation? They haven't walked back to the boat yet. They're not back in the boat. They're out in the middle of the water. And the language makes it pretty clear. Bible language scholars tell us that the inference here is that when Peter started to sink and Jesus reached out to grab him, Jesus did not pick him up. He did not do what I would have done, which is to jump up into Jesus' arms and say, you've got to help me here, right? He's, when, when Jesus reached out and grabbed him, the language infers that Peter rose back up 
to his place on top of the water. And now in the middle of the spray and the storm and the wind and everything swirling around, Peter and Jesus are face to face and they're looking at each other. And I just think Jesus was saying, but you were doing it. You were doing it. What happened? I don't get it. I mean, you were doing a fantastic job. Come on, let's walk some more. We got to get back to the boat. Because the Bible says they went back to the boat and they climbed back up. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus deposited Peter into the boat, which is what he would have had to have done with me. The Bible says they both climbed back up into the boat. Peter and Jesus walked back to the boat together. I don't think Jesus was mad at Peter. I don't think he was frustrated with Peter. I think he was thrilled that somebody finally got it. That in moments when we're in the middle of the storm, it's time to think out of the box. If we're following God, if our will is dialed in to where God's will is, it's time to think out of the box and to recognize that God is going to be there for us and he can do stuff that we can't even imagine. I love this verse. Uh, This verse in Matthew 19, Jesus is talking to the disciples about people going to heaven and and there's been this rich guy that, that Jesus was just talking to and this rich guy was trying to figure out what he had to do in order to be able to be good enough to go to heaven and and, and Jesus said, well, well, first of all, you're going to have to go sell all your stuff. And he said, no, I don't want to do that. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, it's easier for a camel to slip through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to make it into heaven. And the disciples get wigged out because they're like, well, then who on earth can, can go to heaven? And you have to understand, Jesus wasn't saying that a person who has money can't go to heaven. He was saying that a person who has money can't buy their way into heaven. And a person who's a good person can't be good enough to get into heaven. And a person that, that has a lot of sincerity of heart can't be sincere enough to go to heaven. The only thing that's ever going to get any person to heaven is Jesus Christ. He wanted them to understand that, but he's also going to teach us another principle that's huge here. He said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but with God, everything is possible. With God, everything is possible. When I was reading this when I was growing up, I kind of had this sort of God in my pocket view of this verse. The Bible says, with God, everything is possible. Well, I believe in God, So God and I have a relationship, so that means I have God in my pocket, so I am with God, so then everything ought to be possible. I'm five years old, I ought to be able to pick up the piano by now. I ought to be able to fly, I ought to be able to do all kinds of stuff. The Bible says anything is possible with God, and I have him right here in my pocket, and that's not at all what that verse is saying. In the original language, the word with there means alongside. It it, it literally means, Blackaby said this in his amazing book. Blackaby said, "The, the, the way to experience God is, is to find out what God is at work doing and get in on it. So find God at work and get in on it. So this is what the Bible is saying. When we find God at work and we come alongside him and we follow him, then anything is possible. And God is calling you to something. God is revealing to you in some way what it is that he's trying to do and what he's trying to accomplish. And he's saying, look, if you'll come alongside. You know, do you ever wonder why so many New Springers will spend six nights of their life doing Judgment House, going home late at night and, and, and spending hours here together as a team? I mean, for one thing, we love working together as a team, but you want to know what the biggest part of it is? You just got a bunch of people who are looking for where God is at work, and when they know that Judgment House is in session, they know that God is doing stuff on the corner of K96 and 21st Street, and they're just going to be there. They're like, I'm going to find where God is at work, and I'm going to get in on it, because when God is in on it, anything is possible. One of my favorite stories is of a missionary named George Mueller. You may, name may, be, may be familiar to you um, or may not be. George Mueller, uh, when he was growing up, he was a little bit of a problem child. He stole money from his dad several times. He was very rambunctious, got into a lot of trouble. Eventually, as a teenager, he landed in jail for a little while. 
And then when he got out of jail, his father's trying to help him straighten up. And his father said, you know, you're old enough now to go to college. And so he sent his son to this Bible college. And this was in Germany. And at the time, you know, you're talking very early 1800s at this point. Many of the colleges had some sort of Bible bent to them. So he sends them to this school. But I don't think his father was particularly spiritual. And I know for a fact that, that George Mueller wasn't. When he went to that school, he, he was a heavy drinking guy, spent a ton of time in bars. He gambled away a lot of money. And, and the one thing he had going for him was he was a little bit of a comedian. His friends really thought he was very funny. And what he was most funny at was when he was making fun of the Christians that he was going to school with. He thought the Christians were very peculiar and funny, and and he was very good at sort of poking fun at them. And one evening, he was invited to go to a Bible study with some of the other students there at the school, a prayer meeting, and uh, he agreed to go. Not because he wanted to go study the Bible, but because he needed new material. Um, He needed some new stuff to poke fun at. And so he goes to this meeting, but when he went, he heard about a God that really loved him, even with all the mistakes that he'd made, and a God that wanted to have a relationship with him, and it got a hold of his heart, and it changed his life forever. He walked out of there a completely different person. And in the, in the weeks ahead, God really got a hold of his heart, and he had a sense that God wanted him to be a missionary to England. And so he contacted his dad, and he said, I really think that you know, God wants... To, God wants me to be a missionary to England and I want to go back to school and and I want to finish my school in that way. I want to learn how to be a missionary. And and his dad said, listen, if you be a missionary, you're not going to make any money and you're going to expect me to support you all the time, so I'll just make this easy for you. I'm going to stop supporting you right now if you go that route. If If you decide you want to be a missionary, I'm not going to pay for another cent of your college education. You're going to be on your own. And if that wasn't bad enough, all of his heavy drinking friends that he'd spent years growing up with and knowing thought now that he was really just a pain to be around and they didn't like the fact that he was talking about Jesus all the time and so they just kind of pushed him away. This would have been the perfect time for George Mueller to say, you know, God, I would love to go be a missionary, uh, but my whole support system is gone now and my dad isn't going to pay for college and and at a minimum you have to go to college. I mean, I got to go to Bible school to finish Bible school to be a missionary, so the complication is really more than I can manage and so I think I'm just going to settle for staying in my old program and then we'll just see what happens down the road. Would have been the perfect time for him to do that, but he really believed that he had found God and that he was alongside God and he wasn't willing to compromise. And so what he did, he went the first day of that next semester to his Bible college and he, he wrote in his remembrance that it felt a little silly for a grown man to do this, but he kneeled in front of the college campus and he basically said, God, if I'm going to be able to finish my education, you're going to have to make it happen because nobody else is going to make it happen for me. And it wasn't, it was the same day that a faculty member of the school came and said to him, I have a paid tutoring job and I need somebody to do. I know you're a good student. Would you be interested in this? And that paid tutoring job paid the rest of his way through school. And then he left England, or he left Germany and went to England to be a missionary and he found this church. This church really wanted to call him as a pastor and they offered him a very nice salary. And he went and visited the church. He just had one problem. He noticed that the people in the front rows of the church were very rich and all the poor people in the church were sitting way at the back. And he asked, he said, what's going on with this? And they said, well, this is a tradition in England, it's normal, that people who are sitting in the front rows, well, they rent those rows um, and, and they, you know, they, they pay for it. And the, the poor people have to sit back in the cheap seats in the back of the room. Um, and George Mueller said, well, if I'm going to be your pastor, that's going to have to be that's going to stop. It's got to stop. And they said to him, well, then you got a problem because that's how we pay your salary. So, you know, if you want a salary, you're going to have to just leave it the way it is. And that would have been the perfect time for George Mueller to go to God and say, God, I would love to fix this problem. 
I would love to make it so that people can sit wherever they choose to sit and that there's not this divide between people in the church based off of how much money they have or how much money they give. Um, but, you know, I got to eat. I got to have a salary. So I'm going to just settle for letting it be for right now. And then maybe someday down the road, I'll find a way to, to deal with it. Instead, he said, you know what? Um, I'll be your pastor and you don't have to pay me a salary. He said, you know, if, if that's the problem, if the problem is you gotta pay me, then don't worry about it. God's been taking care of me so far. I think he'll keep taking care of me because he believed that he had the knob of his will tuned to the knob of God's will and he said, I have a hunch God will take care of me. And he did. The whole time Mueller was pastor there, God took care of his needs. But he noticed over the next few years as he was walking up and down the sidewalks of that city in England, all these little kiddos who were walking the streets who had no home, because at the time there was no formal orphanage really for them to be a, a part of, and, and at that point if a kid's parents died, there were no other family to take them in, these kids would end up on the street. And, and George Miller just felt like God was not okay with that. He felt like God would want somebody to be taking care of these kids. And so he resigned his position from the church and he opened up an orphanage. Now here's the thing, he had no money, he had no building, he had no staff, he had no resources to take care of the kids. And so everywhere when he went around pitching this idea, and when people said, well, how are you going to pull that off? He would say, well, we're just going to have to pray for it. We'll have to see what God does. And amazingly, God always made sure that they had what they need. 10,000 kids went through the orphanages that George Mueller did. And I don't think George Mueller ever completely got out of a storm. I think his entire time doing that ministry, there was always a complication, always a complication at every turn, but he knew that God was bigger than the complication, and as long as he was with God, it was going to be okay. My favorite story, I'm going to tell you this story, and then we're going to be done, but this is my favorite story of George Mueller. The worst it got when he was doing this was when there were 300 kids in his orphanage. 300 kids is a lot of kiddos, and um, they just weren't doing very well financially, and the, the, the house mother came to him one morning and said, the kids are all ready for school, they're dressed and ready to go, but we just really don't have anything to feed them for, uh, for breakfast. And he said, well, send them down to the dining room as always. They sent the kids down to the dining room, and he did what he always did. Every morning he'd go down, and before they would eat breakfast, he would do what many of us do. He would say a word of prayer over the food uh, before they would eat. So he went down, and he prayed a word of prayer over the food that was not there yet. And then afterwards, he just stood there and waited. A few minutes later, there's a knock that comes on the door. It was the baker in the town. And he, when George Mueller opens the door, the baker says, you know, I just couldn't get to sleep last night. And I had this huge feeling that I just needed to be baking bread for your kids. He said, I've got these three huge batches of bread that I've baked, and I was wondering if you guys could use it. And so he, he said, I just need some people to carry it in with me. So they're, they're going out and they're bringing the bread in. And as they're doing that, the local milkman comes up to them and says, the craziest thing, one of the wheels has fallen off my, um, my milk cart. And he said, I can't fix it. And the only guy who's going to be able to fix it, it's gonna, the milk's going to spoil before he gets there. And he's like, I hate to see the milk go completely bad. He said, do you think your kids could use what I have on my milk cart? And in Mueller's notes about the incident, he wrote, it was just enough for 300 thirsty kids. I'm just saying, what is God calling you to? What is he at work doing in your life? What is he at work doing in the world? What is he at work doing at New Spring Church? What is he at work doing at your job, at your workplace? What is he at work doing in your neighborhood? Imagine what you could accomplish if you would be with God, if you would line up with what he's doing. Because the Bible says there isn't anything that he can't make possible. 
in that situation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you love us and that you are there for us in the middle of a storm and that we can be confident that when we are with you, there is nothing that is impossible. Heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed. One last thing and we're going to be done. I said when Peter called out to Jesus and he said, Lord, save me, that Jesus reached out for him immediately. If you're in this room and for some reason you've never really connected with God and you're saying, I've never been with God because I just have never interfaced with him before, I want you to know it doesn't take much. Jesus is there and he's ready, he's ready to have a relationship with you. He's done everything that is necessary. He's just waiting for you to reach out to him and say, I need your help. So before we leave, I'm going to pray the words to a very simple prayer. And you, you need to know this is, this is not a magic prayer. It's just a prayer that, that calls out to God and says, I want to have a relationship with you. And if you want to do that, it can be settled today before you leave. You can say this silently in your head to God. Here's that prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. I know I do wrong things. And I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today, I accept your free gift of heaven, forgiveness, and a relationship with you. Thank you for making me God's child. In Jesus' name. All right, everybody look this way just for a second. I know everybody's going to be in a hurry to get to lunch. But if you just prayed to receive Christ, do me a favor, would you? Would you take that Talk to Us card that's in front of you? Check the little box that says, I prayed to receive Christ. Take it to guest services. We've got this really nice gift bag we'd like to give you. It has a Bible in it um, and a booklet and several things that will help you get started in your journey with God. Thank you so much for being here this weekend. We'll see you next week.